invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Chapter 1, we'll read the first six verses. Then we're going to focus upon verses 3 to 6 this morning. So Philippians chapter 1, this is the word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We all appreciate being thanked, don't we? We like someone to say, thank you for what you said or what you did, or when they've gone, we get a card through the post and we appreciate it we like to feel loved and thanked now if you'd lived in Paul's day just like with us when we write letters there were conventions when you wrote a letter to somebody and it was a convention a practice that you first of all thanked the gods of whom, of course, there were many uh, supposed gods among the Greeks in Paul's day. And you gave the person to whom you were writing the assurance that you were praying to the gods for them, for their welfare or for their health. You just have a little reminder of that when John writes his third letter, where he actually takes that convention and wishes that uh, those to whom he's writing are in good health, 3 John verse 2. And then the convention would go on and there would be reasons why the writer is giving thanks and often it would be because the gods had uh, saved the reader from some situation or some calamity. And Paul takes over that practice because not everything that's in the world is totally evil, is it? Thank God there's still the image of God in people and there's still what we call common grace. But this is what Paul does then in verse 3. He thanks God. But will you notice the difference? He's not thanking the gods or one of the particular gods like Zeus or Hermes, but he's thanking the one true God whom he calls my God. 
This is not some distant God with whom there is no personal relationship. Paul knows God as his God. And what he thanks God for is something very specifically Christian. No pagan Greek could write verse 5 or verse 6, for example. This thanksgiving, as you read it, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Doesn't it show the very close relationship that Paul had with the Philippians? He's constantly praying. He's saying, whenever I pray, I'm remembering you. I'm thanking God for you. He's always, uh, they're always on his heart. And it's a, a joyful praying. It's not because the right time has arrived, he's got to fulfill his duty. This is something Paul delights to do, verse 4. Making my prayer with joy. He has great affection for them. And uh, you see this in uh, verses uh, 7 and following. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you're all partakers with me of grace. Verse 8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So we learn something about prayer here, something constant for others, something joyful. He gives two reasons uh, why He's thanking God. In verse 5, it's for their partnership in the gospel, or if you have the New King James Version, for their fellowship in the gospel. And then in verse 6, his second reason is because he's assured that God will complete the work that he has begun in them. And it's just possible there's a third reason for his thanksgiving, because verse 3 could be translated, and it's quite possible to do this differently. It's not Paul's remembrance of them, but their remembrance of him, just changing the pronouns round. Because one of the reasons that made Paul write at this time was that the Philippian Christians had sent him a gift. And he's writing to thank them for the gift. You see that in the last chapter, chapter 4. So it's quite possible here in chapter 3, he says, I'm thanking God because you've remembered me. But there's discussion which one is, is right. What we're going to do this morning, I hope the first screen is there. Um, we're going to centre our thoughts around the phrase, your partnership in the gospel, it's found in verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The word that I have in my translation, partnership, is the word, maybe you're even familiar with it in your little knowledge of Greek, uh, koinonia. Some churches are called that. Uh, it's often translated fellowship, 
but you can see here in other versions, it's translated a partnership. You have the same word in chapter 2 and verse 1, where we have, if there's any participation in the Spirit or in the New King James, you have any fellowship in the Spirit. Or again, chapter 3 and verse 10, it's quite a common word for Paul. Sharing in his sufferings, or the New King James has, fellowship in his sufferings. It's in every chapter, chapter 4 and verse 15, where the Macedonians, the only church that entered into partnership with Paul in giving and receiving. So it's the same Messages here in chapter 1 and verse 5, how in their giving, they communicated. I think better, they became partners with Paul in giving and receiving. Fellowship is a very active thing. So, so often we just think of fellowship of being together. We say, and this is quite proper, Let's stay behind after the morning service and have a cup of coffee and fellowship. What we mean is we're just together, we're enjoying being with one another. But this word fellowship or partnership is far more active than that. Here are two men, we'll call them John and Peter. They decide to start a window cleaning business as a partnership and so they pool their resources together. They invest in a new company. They need to buy their capital equipment and they need to advertise their services. That's fellowship. As John and Peter get together for a common purpose, Now, the Macedonians in Philippi was in the district of Macedonia. The Macedonians, along with other Christians, they also had a partnership. It was a financial partnership of, of giving, giving to Paul and giving to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And that's called fellowship, if you read Romans 15, 26, for example. So this word we're very familiar with, fellowship, it often means when we are fellowshipping, we are giving ourselves. We are sacrificing ourselves for a shared purpose that is together with other people. And here in verse 5, it's your partnership in the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. How did the Philippians have a partnership or fellowship in the gospel with Paul? Well, this very chapter speaks of three things. First of all, they proclaimed the gospel, not only Paul, 
But even the Philippians look down there in verse 27 of chapter 1. He says, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You are participating, you're partnering, you are proclaiming this gospel. And you're partnering in it by suffering for it. Verse 28 talks of their opponents. And verse 29 says, it's been granted you not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. You're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. Do you see the idea there of partnership with Paul? Paul is suffering for the gospel. They've joined in the same venture, the same business. They're also suffering for the gospel. And then the third way that they are partnering is by praying for Paul and for other proclaimers of the gospel. Verse 19 of chapter 1. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So this is the way that the Philippians and ourselves and Christians partner in the gospel. From the moment of their conversion, these Philippians had become involved in seeking the advance of the gospel. The gospel now became number one in their lives, something of the greatest importance to them. And it's a vision that they shared with the Apostle Paul. We might say, to continue the, the wording about business, they invested their lives for the gospel and the Philippians were prepared to do whatever it took to see the gospel advancing. So centering our thoughts and in those words, your partnership in the gospel, I want to use those words now to relate that to the other themes in these verses three to six and there are three of them. First of all, focusing on the gospel, I urge you, let the gospel be that for which you thank God. Now, we read from Ephesians where Paul also gives thanks there. He gives thanks for the faith of the Ephesian Christians and their love for the saints. But all these things are connected because uh, it's faith in the gospel and it's love for saints who have also believed in the gospel. These are the things that possess the Apostle Paul. And what Paul has heard in the lives of the Philippians because uh, the gift has been brought to him by Epaphroditus, surely he's heard news of the Philippian Christians. He's heard that not only did these Christians believe in the gospel when he preached to them, 
but they continue to hold on to it. And they want to make the gospel known to others in Philippi. And this is what gives him great joy. It's rather like referring to John again in his, his third letter in verse 4. Look at this strong language. John, the apostle, says, I have no greater joy. It's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? Well, what's he so joyful about than to hear that my children are walking in the faith? So Paul is one with John, isn't he? Oh, when I know that you are walking in the, the truth, when I know that you've not only embraced the gospel to begin with, but you've entered a life of partnership with me in the gospel. That gives me joy. And when I pray, I do so joyfully. Now, remember where Paul is? Have you forgotten where Paul is when he writes this? He's in prison, maybe chained to a soldier either side of him. And prisons are pretty plush places today at least by comparison. And yet this is what gives Paul joy. So we can learn that prayer is far more than a list of requests. There's nothing wrong with requesting of God, although let's learn to request what's most important as we read in Ephesians chapter 1 about knowledge. But praying in the Bible invariably begins with thanksgiving or praise to God for what he's done because that shows how great God is. Very interesting example here in Philippians 4. You're anxious and you want to pray that God will give you peace. What does Paul say in chapter 4 and verse 6? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. This should be a part of our prayers at all times. So as you think about other people, which you do, do you pray for them? I think you do. What gives you joy as you pray? That's a very challenging question. I, as I look at Facebook, sometimes I wonder whether it's worth it. But it seems to me that so often what gives joy is some sporting or educational success that uh, our children have gone through. That's okay. Or it's food. Or it's a holiday we've had. It's okay. But surely, my brethren, if that's what gives us joy, then we're on the wrong track. If we don't have far greater joy from participating in the gospel. Enthusiasm for the gospel of Jesus Christ, it must be at the centre of our relationship with one another. 
when we hear of people converted. That's it, isn't it? That's what we're longing to hear. When we hear of our of believers, we don't know personally, but we hear they're standing firm for Christ in suffering. Oh, what joy that should give us. When we hear of God raising up people to take the gospel to the unreached millions or billions in the world, oh, that should give us joy. When we get reliable reports, and I, I must say reliable, from the mission field, what God is doing. These, my friends, are the things that should give us the most joy in our lives. Paul gives us the example here of that. So that's the first thing. In terms of the gospel, um, partnering in the gospel, second thing we see here in verse 5 is that enthusiasm for the gospel is a clear evidence of being a Christian. In fact, you might ask, how can I know if I'm a true Christian? Here is one way that you can know. When you send your child to a new school, then what gives you joy? Very human example. When your son, your daughter comes back and says, oh, I really, I really had a good day today. I like that teacher and this subject. You feel happy, don't you? Because that's why you sent your child to school. Or when your child is performing according to his or her ability, not necessarily number one, because everybody can't be number one, then you're joyful. Again, the purpose for which the child is going to school is being fulfilled. Now, Paul was the first one who came to Philippi. You read about in Acts chapter 16. We know that he saw a, a Jewish woman called Lydia converted. He saw a slave girl who had a demon converted. And he saw a jailer and his household converted. And then he quickly left. Remember, he was put in prison. And uh, when they told him, when he told his uh, captors that he was a Roman citizen, they were ashamed. He'd been beaten and put in prison and they told him to leave the town. What would convince Paul that those three amongst other people in Philippi were genuinely Christian. Not just that they had responded on a certain day to a man who had come with a new message, perhaps they had never heard before. What would convince him? You know, there are many people who profess Christ. They say, I'm a Christian, God has saved me. They have great joy, Jesus says but they're like a seed sown in rocky ground where the soil is very shallow. But when the sun comes up, then it withers and bears no fruit. Many are like that. How could he know that Lydia wasn't a stony ground hearer? 
for example. Well, here it is. They continued to believe the gospel and they continued to want others to know the gospel. This was the evidence, as it goes on in verse 6, that God had begun a good work in them. So if you, having professed faith in Christ, you continue to be enthusiastic about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's a very good evidence that God has been at work in you. Because before you became a Christian, the gospel, like with me, was meaningless, simply didn't understand it, and irrelevant. And many of you actively opposed the gospel before you became Christians. If I were to offer you, hope I can pronounce this properly, artemisinin as a medicine and tell you it's uh, right up front there in uh, treatment. I mean, you've never heard of it anyway, have you? Uh, Maybe anyone working at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine has heard of it. Uh, but even if I tell you it's for malaria and it's the frontline drug, then it doesn't interest you. Why? Because you don't have malaria. But I tell you, if you were a malaria sufferer, that would be good news. That's just what you need uh, for the treatment. If you only know your true state spiritually before God in your sin. And you knew that sin is a fatal spiritual disease. And it was true of you. Then you would do anything to receive the good news of Jesus Christ, which is what the word gospel means. And having tasted it yourself and having been cured yourself, just like people do with treatment that they find effective, you will go and tell others about the gospel, what it's done for you, what it's done for countless millions of people and what it can do for them. I mean, my friends, what else can cleanse your conscience? your guilty conscience from dead works? What else can bring you an unchanging joy of knowing God but the gospel? What else can give you power to lead a godly life, to turn your back upon sin and live to the glory of God? So I say to you that if you've got no joy in wanting to make the gospel known by witnessing, by praying for others, by giving for the cause of the gospel, the question you've got to ask yourself, have you really received the gospel into your own heart? Then the third thing in these verses is found in verse 6. 
This enthusiasm for the gospel is a reason for assurance. If you have it, you can have assurance of final salvation. Paul says in verse 6, he who began a good work in you. What Paul knows about the Philippians and their partnership in the gospel makes him sure that God has begun a good work in them. Now that's a very instructive way of learning what a Christian is. A Christian is one in whom God has begun to work because only God can make someone a Christian. How did Lydia become a Christian? Remind you, Lydia was in Philippi. How did she become a Christian? Well, it's true that she heard Paul preaching by the riverside, but we read God opened her heart to receive or to give heed to what Paul was preaching. If God hadn't have done that, her heart would have been closed and the word would never have penetrated. It's God who did it, isn't it? Here's the slave girl. She's possessed by an evil spirit. Only by God's power could that evil spirit be cast out and the girl come to a right mind and be saved. And here's a jailer, just like a centurion, rough, strong. What would move a centurion? An earthquake that opened all the doors of the prison so that every prisoner could escape and so that the jailer would know his life is now forfeit. And it brought him to his knees. What must I do to be saved? But it's God who brought the earthquake, isn't it? In all these things, it's God who works in circumstances and in the heart. What is there in you that can only be ascribed to God working in you in saving power? Because to become a Christian, it means God has begun to work in you. It's not that you made a decision to follow Christ. You may have done that. And definitely we must all believe to be saved. But you don't become a Christian by you doing something. And certainly you don't become a Christian by changing your outward life. You say, I'm going to be regular at church now, morning and evening, and I'm going to pray every day. Those are good things. Please do them. But you don't become a Christian by doing them. You become a Christian when God works in your heart, changes your heart, gives you a new heart. <clears throat> the very center of your being is made alive. And so that changes the whole of your outward life. So Paul is sure that God has begun, but he's sure of another thing. He's sure that if God has begun, that's why it's so important to emphasize it's God. If God has begun it, 
God will complete it. God isn't like many who leave a thing halfway for a good or bad reason. <clears throat> I'm sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It won't be completed at death, but it will be completed in the day of Jesus Christ. That is when Jesus returns in glory. When you become a Christian, he changes your heart. But you still look the same person, don't you? You look the same age. You've got the same strength or weakness of body. The same features of your body. They don't change. But a time is coming when Jesus returns, when that salvation will extend to your bodies. And either you'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye when Jesus returns, or you'll be raised from the dead at the same time. It's what Paul says elsewhere, that the perishable will put on the imperishable. The mortal will put on immortality. <clears throat> That's the completion of the work that uh, God begins in us. <clears throat> Again, elsewhere in Romans 8, verse 23, Paul says that for that day, we await eagerly. It's the day of Adoption, when we'll know the full blessing of adoption, when our bodies are redeemed. So then, God is at work. He's at work from the beginning to the end and all through from the beginning to the end. God is ordering every circumstance in your life to attain that certain glorious goal. And absolutely nothing can separate you from him. It's a great statement, isn't it? I'm sure of this. I'm absolutely convinced that the God who began will complete. So it's so important for you, my, my Christian friend, to know that whatever was your actual experience when you became a Christian, it was above all God who first laid hold of you to save you. However God did it, he did it to each of us in a different way. And the God who laid hold of you, he won't let you go. Remember what Jesus said? None shall pluck them from my hand. I give them eternal life. No matter how fierce the suffering. Remember, Paul's in prison. None of us have been remotely suffering like that. he will eventually be put to death for his faith. The Philippians were undergoing suffering for the faith. 
But no matter how fierce the suffering, let death come. God will complete his work. Lloyd-Jones on this verse, he says that, let's note that Paul's thinking about the church. And please note that he's writing to a church and that you, which in English can be singular or plural, is invariably plural when Paul writes. So Paul is not simply talking about an individual when he says God's uh, begun a work in you. This is true of the church as a whole made up of the saints of God. Paul's idea of the church then is it's a place where God is at work. Isn't that encouraging for us next here this morning? God is at work through his word, even as it's preached this morning and by his spirit. He's at work in saving power. He's at work conducting you along and he will finally bring that whole process to completion. At that time, he is determined when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. So brethren, let's not fear for the future of the church. God who began, he's going to complete it. But you show that you are truly a part of the church of God by your enthusiasm for the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your servant Paul, for his praying, his thanksgiving, his confidence. Thank you for the relevance that these things have for us. Please, Lord, work in us. Please help those who have no enthusiasm for the gospel to see that they're not converted. Oh, may they find in Christ and him crucified this morning that which their souls need. For those of us who have been lazy, careless, too much concerned with this world, please, Work in us, Lord, that we might give our lives for the gospel and partnering in it with your people. Oh God, hear us and bless us, we plead. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.